From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. When you're in a disruptive environment as ours is, your responsibility isn't to tell customers what you can do. Your responsibility is to do forensic investigation and explain to customers how we can help them solve problems and how we can really help them transform their business for this new world. Hi everyone, Justin Schreiber here. Today I'm joined by Dolly Reich. If you look up self-made man at the dictionary, you'll find a picture of Dolly. He was born in Croatia and came on his own to the United States when he was only 16 years old. Over the ensuing decades, he's dedicated himself to being a student of sales, getting an education at selling powerhouses like EMC and BMC. His journey led him to the CRO suite at Zscaler, one of the hottest tech companies around. Today, Dolly will compare and contrast different schools of sales and break down the unique form of selling that he's implemented at Zscaler. Let's jump into the conversation. Dolly, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it, Justin. Well, this is going to be a fun conversation, and I wanted to start off with a very intriguing facet of your life. You actually grew up in Croatia. You got to tell us about life in Croatia and as a kid, what your experience was. Well, here's what I'll tell you. Um, I, I was born in Croatia, but grew up in Hamburg, Germany, but we used to go back every summer. And, um, you know, both my parents had parents who were farmers. So my summers included a lot of work uh, and then play in the afternoons, early mornings, heavy labor, a little bit of play in the afternoons. Those were my summer breaks, uh, but it was uh, it was really nice. That's the way to do it. Work in the morning, play in the afternoon. What kind of a farm was it? So on my dad's side, it was uh, predominantly, uh, and you'll laugh at this, um, goats. So my grandma owned You were a goat a- farmer. That is correct. And um, and on my mom's side, my grandfather owned, uh, you know, tobacco fields. That experience had to shape you growing up on the farm. Anything today uh, that's a part of you and you look back and, and it started working the farm? Well, here's what I'll tell you. You know, I, w- I was little when we left for Germany, but, you know, you kind of you kind of keep that mentality of you just take work as a as a steady state of something you have to do before you can go out and enjoy the spoils a little bit. So, you know, when your summer and winter vacations are really geared around, first you help your grandparents and then you go do whatever and disappear for hours. Um, it, it it stays with you, right? It, it it just, you never question that you got to do something in order to then be able to enjoy yourself a little bit. You know, there's such a great lesson there. The thing about kids too is, their reality is just being shaped. They don't have anything to compare it to. So as a kid, if your life is about, if if work is a healthy component of it, you just assume that that's what life is and you carry that with you in in subsequent years. You you do. It makes a, makes a huge difference. I compare it to my kids today and it's a, it's a very different perspective on, you know, how you define work. 
versus you know 20 minutes of chores. I, I often joke around that in the society that we live in, you've got to work to find work for your kids, but it definitely pays off. I, I uh, remember every, more, every Saturday morning with my kids, bringing them out and we would pull weeds together. And each of the kids would have a little bucket and I had the big Home Depot bucket, the orange bucket. And yeah. obviously I was fortunate to be in a position where we didn't need to do that, but I considered that a privilege to have a yard where the weeds grew because I thought that was an excellent training ground for the kids and how to, how to work. I, I agree. I think anything you can get them busy with today, especially in these days to get them away from that screen time uh, is an extra bonus. So, uh, but we got to work at it today. Back in those days, it was just, you just had to do it. It was part of life. So yeah. you, you ended up in Hamburg, Germany then. How old yeah. were you when you landed in Germany? And tell me a little bit about that time. So it's probably about three, three and a half um, when I landed there. So my my early school years were really in Germany and it was my, my parents creating a new life for ourselves. And, um, you know, it, if you look back at why some of those decisions were made, because uh, they had great jobs in what was Yugoslavia back then, but uh, they just didn't see a future for their children. So they immigrated into Germany and um, really had to step back in, in their careers and what they were doing. Got to learn the language, got to understand where you're going to be, got to get your papers and all that good stuff. So um, it was, um, you know, it was it was a pure immigrant lifestyle back in those days. You lived in specific neighborhoods, you, you know, grew up a certain way and you you work really hard trying to figure out what's your path in life while your parents are busy working all day long. So you went from obviously very young, but you went into a situation where you were no longer the uh, the the native person. Um, yeah. You were you were just trying to fit in. What, what was that like? I mean, here's what I'll tell you. Um, it, it, it was an interesting upbringing because, you know, when when you are an immigrant, you live in certain neighborhoods, you live with, you know, other immigrants and kind of the rest of that world is your ambition, is your dream of where you want to get to eventually. And you do feel like you're in a pocket, like you're the underdog, like you're trying to, you know, make it, if you will. And, um, you know, it's it's an unintended consequence of, I think, most countries and uh, immigrants that come in. You just feel like you're you're not part of it quite mm -hmm. yet mm -hmm. and you have to work at it to become part of it. So you feel like you're coming from behind most of the time and that kind of shapes your thinking. And I also think it shapes your grit and your fight a little bit. So as a kid, what was your dream? My dream as a kid was to go to university and to become an engineer, just like my dad. It was as simple. I did not have any fancy astronaut dreams. It was more pragmatic even back in those days. Did you feel like the cards were stacked against you or did you just have this attitude that if I work hard and put my head down, I can make it happen? It's a complex question if we were to parse it apart. Uh, but you just naturally feel like you know, you're, you're coming from behind a little bit, if you will, because yeah. it's not your country. It's not your customs. Um, you clearly, you know, are trying to become part of the community, but you're, you're not quite there. You always feel like you're, you know, having to work a little harder, try a little harder and prove yourself a little bit more. So it, 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 it does, it does travel with you. Um, and, um, you know, I do recall that, from from my early years, I, I've had great memories there. 
And, uh, you know, I love Germany and everything that it offers. But, you know, my early years, my brother, for example, was a little bit younger than me. He 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 kind of rolled the wave where my parents started coming out of it a little bit. I, I did not have that benefit. Yeah. We are a country of immigrants here in the United States. I think sometimes we forget that. And unfortunately, among some, I think there's a feeling of entitlement. But really, if you look at the fabric of the United States, it's woven um, across cultures, across different people. How does how does your experience as a kid impact your reality today and how you view our society? Yeah, if you if you think about it, I came to the U.S. when I was 16 and, you know, parents and family stayed back in Germany. So so I, I guess you could say I immigrated to the United States as well. And if I if I look at where we are today and if I look at where, you know, things were even back then, um, there still is this. I feel like separation of when you first come in that you just you're trying to figure out how to belong and where to belong to. And there there isn't a natural compass for that. So you are constantly feeling like you're having to prove come from behind and there there isn't a playbook for it. Right. So unless you if you have a great network and a great infrastructure and system of other, other immigrants, you know, your family then you can blend into society easier. If not, it can be daunting and it can be overwhelming. And you could almost, instead of unfolding in all that you can become, go into a small cocoon trying to protect yourself. And I I see that even today. I I don't see a, a clear, easy path for people to come in and really take advantage for what are amazing opportunities in this country. So you're 16 years old. You land in the United States. How did you navigate that period of your life? I was very fortunate. Um, I was a you know foreign exchange student for one year, and I landed with this um, with this family uh, in the deep desert of California. And uh, they were both retirees and very very patient. And I thank him for it. And you know we've stayed. Uh, good friends since um, it was difficult. Uh, it was a culture shock. It was um, again, you know, you kind of there's no playbook for how you should behave, what you should do, how you should be. You make mistakes, you, you're not realizing why you made those mistakes. So it's not that easy to course correct. So, you know, you kind of accept the fact that you're going to get, you know, bumped and bruised up a little bit along the way, but you just keep plowing forward and you just keep going and setbacks and anything that's, you know, not an ideal experience, if you will. You just accept that as as part of the journey and you you don't let it impact you. Can you think of an experience or a lesson that you learned from that couple that took you in that still stays with you today? Yeah, P- patience and acceptance for the unknown and for the very different. Because I was an unknown to them. I was very different Um than how they were, how they lived their lives. And just the calmness, the patience, the understanding, the time they gave me, the investments they made in explaining things to me is what really, in my mind, gave me that platform at the time to, to make it. Because you know, I was thinking many times, should I go back? You know, This is not for me. And it was really them who pulled me through that. And um, that's stayed with me. And and here you are today. What a testament to the impact that a an individual or a couple can have, creating a safe place, being patient, and and just bringing you along through the ropes. 
Yeah, very true. So, so you went from that experience to eventually finding your way to sales. Tell me a little bit about how you, you landed in sales in the first place. Yeah, it's, um, you know, as I was graduating college, um, and originally I went into engineering, switched it over to business later. As I was graduating college, I was, you know, self-aware enough to know that office life on its own might not be for me because, you know, restless spirit, restless mind, uh, I like being on the go. The other thing that was important to me is, you know, the value of learning uh, was always something that, you know, stayed with me uh, from an early age on. And um, and I, I wanted to go into a profession where I could learn, not just from the company that I was working for, but learn from the different people I was engaging with. And in this case, my thinking was, hey, I get to engage with many customers in many industries. That ought to be a tremendous experience. And I can learn about all these industries and how, how companies run, why they run the way they run. So I, I had a little bit more of an idealistic dream of what sales was about at that time. Uh, but I wasn't I wasn't that far off. So I uh, decided that was going to be the profession to go into and, and did. That idea of embracing a spirit of learning is so powerful. And I love the fact that even as a young professional, that's what you prioritized as opposed to getting the promotion, getting the big title, making the money. What's interesting is I find that people that put curiosity learning first end up getting those rewards later in their career. If you invert it, though, so many times you stymie your career. It is. Uh, you were spot on with that assessment. It's it's pretty interesting to me how, you know, over the years, the generations have evolved where the patience level for the reward has shrunk Right. And they've disconnected at times. Um, the fact that you got to continue to learn, evolve, you got to build these foundations of knowledge. And if you do that, you are absolutely going to have these gains that you're going to get over time. We call them marginal gains, right? You're stacking the knowledge, you're continuing to improve one skill at a time, one piece of you know, knowledge source that you store in your database. And over time, then, um, there comes a point when that opportunity presents itself, you get to accelerate because you have all of this knowledge. You don't miss it. Those windows that present themselves, you miss them if you haven't built that base knowledge, that expansive knowledge. And um, it isn't just tunnel-focused knowledge around just what you do. It has to be broader. So the learning has to be not just so I can get something but so I can get to a different place mentally, uh, spiritually, if you will, right? You're right. If you look at the careers of many people, they've taken jobs that, you know, they knew were going to give them a platform for success as opposed to what's the highest pay that I'm going to get. Boom. That's where I go. Ironically, the first job out of college I took paid me. And at that time, that was decent amount of money paid me 20 almost 25% less than the other offer I had on the table. But they had, you know, all these learning and training programs that they invested in for their people. And that was just tremendously appealing to me. So was this EMC? No, this was standard register way, okay. way back in the day. All right. Going way old school. Yes. Paper. Dunder Mifflin style. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about EMC. That's a that's a company that's famous for the culture that they've built, for the training, and for the, the system that they've created. Yeah. 
I was um, at EMC during an interesting period in, in, you know, 99 into the early 2000s. And um, and it was a it was a different company back then. Uh, It was it was a company that was trying to take market away from some of the legacy providers and was, you know, doing it successfully. But it was a very, very aggressive, hard core, you know, sales culture built around results and really no forgiveness if you didn't deliver them. So it, it, to me, those were tremendous years. I still have a lot of friends from that era because we all went through, it feels like, you know, boot camp together. And if I look back at EMC, there, there were some great experiences and also some experience. I think you learn from the positive and the negative equally. The amount of qualification, the sense of urgency, uh, the business case creation, you know, getting to the economic buyer so you understand what really matters to the business, all of those core principles around selling. Uh, EMC did a really great job teaching those and making sure that you continued evolving around that spectrum. So you described the culture as aggressive. What does that mean? It was a different era back then. And I think, um, I think, uh, we had a lot of instances where if you didn't deliver, you know, the number for the quarter, you, you didn't know what was going to happen next. From my point of view, if if you constantly have that fear, that risk hanging over your head, you know, not everybody's equally equipped to deal with it. And it might actually hinder you from performing at your best because you're never going to take that big risk. You're never going to take that big, gigantic leap because you know that you have to deliver something or else. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm generalizing here. That wasn't how all the teams were run, but there was definitely some of that floating around back in those days. I've often considered the question, is it up to the company to define a distinct culture and then bring the people in that fit into that culture? Or does the company need to show some flexibility and to some extent adapt to the different styles of the people that they bring in? I want to parse those two things apart. Um, I think they're related, but you have to sequence them. I do think the company has to determine what sort of culture they're going to drive. And then you have to bring in the people that that you believe fit into that mold. Then you have to you know, shape those people. You have to educate them. You have to coach them, develop them. That's your responsibility as, as an organization. At the same time, uh, you have to give people the ability to flex, to be themselves, so to be their unique individual, but operate within a system, because if that system is created right, it was created so that um, it provides a path to success, right? And it was created so that it minimizes mistakes and minimizes missteps. But again, if if you're asking or trying to build, you know, clones and drones, if you will, uh, I think that's a short-lived recipe. I don't see how that can be sustainable and or can be scaled in a way that allows you to really keep your people and don't a trip. So how do you strike that balance between codifying the system or the program, but also respecting the individual facets that your your team is going to bring to the table? It's a fine balance. And it's something that I think every sales leader uh, tries to institute within their organization. Um, you have to have a framework. You have to have a process in place. You have to have that formula for success because otherwise you're, you're, you know, not really putting your people into the best possible position to succeed. And then there's really, in my mind, two ways that you can get people to not be compliant, but really be inspired and believe in the process and in the methodology and in the path forward. 
And the way you do that is by providing enablement, enablement for not just the individual contributors, but really, really multi-layered enablement for the sales leaders as well, for the SC leaders as well. You got to teach people how to develop people. You got to teach them how to run a business and how to develop people, how to allow people to be themselves within that system. These are all things that, you know, are most of the time not natural. And as people evolve in their careers and move up another layer, another layer, another layer, and you got to teach them again how to do it at those additional layers. So you can't separate those elements. They all have to be finely interwoven. I've heard you say that the key to building a thriving organization is you have to make or you have to help people to become the best versions of themselves. Yeah. That's the, the, the biggest motivator to stay at an organization. Yeah, I agree. So in my mind, you know, you got to be able to offer up intellectual, professional, financial and career growth to individuals. If you do that, they stay with you for a long time and they're going to reach the potential that they have. In order to do that, I'll go back to again, you got to build a framework. You got to build a framework that is metrics um, centric. Because if you don't have an understanding as to what is going on and where you have sub-optimized elements, then how are you going to impact them? Now, as you build this metrics process-centric organization and go to market motion, you got to build the enablement on how to execute against it. So you got the framework, and then you got to build the playbooks, and then you got to sequence them, and then you got to continue fine-tuning them, and you got to continue evolving them because the market evolves, your competitors evolve, your product set evolves, right? So this becomes living and breathing. When you do this, and when you inspire people to help them understand how they can, again, intellectually, professionally, financially, and personally, how they can evolve, that's a really, really great foundation to give people that platform. At the end of the day, though, they, they got to take it. They yeah. got to do something with it because you can't make grown people do anything they don't want to do. You talked a little bit about frameworks and also about playbooks. Yeah. What's the difference between those? At a most simplistic level, framework is what is it that we're trying to do and what is it we're doing? And ideally, why are we doing it? And then the playbooks are really centered around, so how do we best optimize and execute on each step within those frameworks. So these playbooks then again become where a company can connect into one another. All the different teams, if they understand what their roles, responsibilities are, what the different ways are to really achieve those, how it's interconnected, what is the sequence? You again, you're creating a formula for success. You're creating clear uh, descriptions of responsibilities and of desired outcomes. And when people have clarity of mission, clarity of, of you know, purpose, it's a lot easier to do things at pace with minimal mistakes and minimal suboptimization. So can't have one without the other. Again, it's part of the people have to believe and be inspired by seeing you know, that their journey is going to get them to a different plateau. That's Dolly Reich, CRO at Zscaler. When we come back, Dolly dives into how he made the leap from engineering to sales and why he's never looked back. Stay with us. I'm Justin Schreiber, and you're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing. Welcome back. My guest today is Dolly Reich. It's a long way from a goat farm in Croatia to Chicago, 
where Dolly currently heads up sales at Zscaler. But Dolly has been learning every step of the way, which is why today he has a proven playbook for building sales organizations that deliver growth at an accelerated pace. Let's get back to the conversation to find out more about how Dolly delivers year in and year out. So to drill in a little bit more on the playbooks, how do you actually develop that playbook? And how do you know if when it's out in the field, it's actually going to work? Nobody's going to start any sort of go to market org and say, here's my 27 playbooks, right? You got to have your core playbooks around process, around execution, around leadership principles. Then you start developing your playbooks around, you know, the different elements around pipeline generation, around how you engage with customers, how you prepare for a first meeting, how you then execute on that first meeting. So it's consultative versus a product pitch, how you make sure that as a, as a technical resource, you do the proper research, you go in and you understand, you know, how to have meaningful dialogue with that customer, how to educate that customer on perhaps a different way of thinking than what they've historically had. So where does all this sit? Where does all this reside? It's within the brains of all the, you know, amazing people that you have on your team. So the way we create these playbooks is really with a lot of collaboration from the field. And you start with, you know, the core principles that, you know, those playbooks are things that I've used in the past. And then you start building on top of that with field input, with best practices from out in the industry. You got to have an enabling team that understands you know, how is it that people are digesting content? How do we create best practices, gold standards? And then again, the data resides amongst your team. And we're very, very big on making sure that these individuals who are on our team are participating in this. And that's also how you evolve it. There's a new story. There's a there's a new best practice. There's a new, you know, win that we can learn from. And it doesn't matter where it happened across the globe. If you have a system in place to really harness that information, you can create very, very powerful playbooks off of that. Yeah, it's not theory. It's not, you know, tops down, you must do or else, but it's really, this is what's worked for your peers. Yeah. Let's go do it. Yeah. I've heard you talk about the golden rule as well with respect to uh, the frameworks and the playbooks. Tell us a little bit about that. Here's what I'll tell you. The golden rule is pretty, pretty simple. Uh, the frameworks, they're the non-negotiables. The playbooks is the artistry of the individual and how you leverage those to execute. Um, and that really is my golden rule to how you can be successful. It kind of <laughs> blends into the earlier conversation that we've had. The, the process was designed for a purpose. And that purpose is to maximize success, minimize uh, waste, so give you maximum yield for your efforts. And um, you, you got you to gotta leverage the two elements that we just discussed. Got it. So you're currently the president and CRO at Zscaler. I guess, first of all, give us the pitch on Zscaler. What do you guys do? Yeah. So if you take a look at Zscaler, you know, our mission really is to make the cloud a safe place to do business and enjoyable for all the users. And uh in our minds, the internet has become the new network and it can't be secured in traditional ways. So what this means is that the cloud and the data centers, which used to be main control hubs, have now become one of many interchangeable destinations. And with the Zscaler Zero Trust platform, we aim to securely connect users, devices, and apps using policies over any network. 
And uh, what this really results in is, you know, providing secure any-to-any connectivity, whether it's user-to-app, app-to-app, or connected IoT, OT systems. And we're doing it in a purpose-built, cloud-centric way in an environment that was traditionally built on a lot of hardware, a lot of appliances, and a lot of legacy, legacy ways to solve for these problems. And what work from home over the last year has really done is shown companies that you got to have an agile infrastructure to support the business. That means you need to rethink what agility means. You need to rethink what cloudifying, SaaSizing your business means and how quickly you can get there. What's also happened over the last 12 months is, you know, cybercrime is up, I think, 600%. And that's because this new need has exposed so many vulnerabilities. Hmm. And we're, in essence, the superhighway for our customers to digitally transform and to do so securely. So it's, it's, it's been an interesting, interesting 12 months, I'll, I'll tell you that. So you're playing in a space that is literally evolving by the day. How did you think about building a sales organization that dovetailed into a larger business strategy in an emerging space that was just in the process of being created? When you're in a disruptive environment as ours is, and, um, and I mean massive disruption, this is in my mind one of those inflection points that three, four years from now, we're going to realize how big it really was. Your responsibility isn't to tell customers what you can do. Your responsibility is to explain to customers, to do forensic investigation and explain to customers how we can help them solve problems and how we can really help them transform their business for this new world. What this means is when you're looking at individuals to hire into a go-to-market org, they have to really be naturally curious. They have to be, they have to have consultative minds. They, they have to have patience to really guide customers on this journey, understanding that every customer is going to have different limitations and challenges and obstacles to deal with. So you got to have individuals who are just natural learners, if you will, because it isn't just learning about how Zscaler goes to market, but it's learning about what matters to your customers. And if you really think about it, in this remote world, it's really hard to build relationships. It's really hard to, you know, build those trusted connections because everything is a Zoom call. And after Zoom call, you leave. You don't have hallway conversations. You don't have that 10, 15 minutes where you really get to know somebody personally. So what that means is that it became even more critical that the work we do for our customers is what allowed us to build that trust. So the work we do on their behalf, so we technically have to do a lot of their work for them in order to move them along on this journey. So back to the consultative mind, back to the natural curiosity, back to the, you know, the eager to learn individual. How do you actually figure out, though, if the person that you're interviewing has the goods? We have four variables that we really look for. And then we have a pretty, um, I'm going to call it intricate and defined uh, interview process. And the reason why we have this interview process is twofold. Number one is, obviously, as a company, you want to make sure it's the right fit. But secondly, you also want to make sure that for the candidate, this is the right fit. So if you have one or two quick interviews, you go, wow, this individual is talented, let's go. You did a disservice to the candidate. 
Uh, we look for intelligence. We look for coachability. We look for character. And then we look for experience last. Because those first three things, uh, they're hard for us to teach. Experience, I can, I can make sure you learn through our enablement. So along those lines, then, we've created an interview process that really tests quizzes the candidate along those parameters, while at the same time giving the candidate insight into what the job's going to be, what it requires for them to be successful here. And it really tests them, is this something you're going to be excited about? Is this something you're going to be happy with? And it's it's worked quite well for us. So give me an example of a question that you ask or some kind of a test that you put forward to ascertain whether or not person checks those four boxes. Yeah, there, there, unfortunately, there isn't a you, one you're question. Giving, you're giving, you'd be giving your secret sauce away, though, so we don't want to disclose it, it, any of that. It is my secret sauce, but uh, I'll give you a couple of categories uh, yeah. if that works. You know, how do you how do you um, you know interview for intelligence? <clears throat> you look at past projects, and you got to really go three, four, five layers deep on how they executed on those, how they executed on wins, how they built territories, and you're really looking for the logic and the explanation more so than the actual data points they're sharing. Because these are individuals who are professional at telling stories. So so you gotta really read between the lines of the logic and how they're connecting the story that they're telling you. And you can very quickly see how well thought through that was at the time and how they look back at it now. That would be one of the things. We test a lot for for, teamwork. That's along the character lines, right? You can really start looking at what they've done historically, specific, you know, situations, how they would react to those situations, how they did react in those situations. And on the coachability side, you know, you can really easily go into what they learned, what they learned from their past leaders, why it mattered, what the impact was to their careers, have them describe it. Somebody's self-aware of what all that meant. That usually gives you a really good insight into, you know, uh, how they really take information, process it, and then act on it. I noticed that quota attainment was not on the list. Perhaps that's part of experience, but do you ask about quota attainment? And if so, where does that fit in? Listen, of course, you look at quota attainment, but, um, you know, if somebody's never made quota in their lives, that would be a concern. Uh, but quota attainment, how people interpret it. And um, how they reflect it sometimes can be an art and creative writing. So you do take a look at, you know, past successes, how they've driven them, because you must have experienced success. You must have done something because that then propels you forward to take a risk to try something else again. But to me, quota attainment, it goes back to the other thing you referenced earlier. Most companies don't have an enablement platform. People are, you know, self-learning, self-educating, self-developing. So if I then look at intelligence, coachability, and character, and if I look at somebody's willingness to invest in themselves, I know I have that platform here, and I know we can teach these individuals. Most leaders, even to this day, second, third level, they're, they're self-taught. You know, they read books. They had a, a, a mentor who meant something to them, who guided them. But usually it's not a process and a programmatic type way that they understood how to run their business like a GM. So we discount that a little bit, understanding you know what's out in the market. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll jump back into the conversation. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing, and I'm your host, Justin Schreiber. Let's get back to the discussion. I know that one of the first things you did when you came into Zscaler, you set up the RevOps team, you set up the enablement team. The intuition, I think, usually is, I just need to go hire a bunch of reps and start putting points on the board. Why did you prioritize those two functions as as a couple of the first moves you made? I'll go back to framework and playbook. What is going on? Why? And then how do we impact it, right? The revenue ops engine to me, and it's not a sales ops engine, right? It's a revenue ops engine. What does that mean? That means the metrics cannot in sales cannot be disconnected from the metrics in marketing, from the metrics in finance. It has to be interwoven, right? Lead, lead to cash. You got to see the end-to-end view, and you got to understand all the variables uh, in that process. You got to understand how to optimize them. You got to understand the conversions, and you got to understand the why behind it. So if you don't have that revenue ops engine in there, then how how are you going to optimize as you scale? On the flip side, the enablement team, uh, super critical, because once you identify what is going on, what skill sets maybe need to be developed, how are you going to impact those? You know, you can't be screaming at the scoreboard saying, you got to pipeline generate more, or you got to close at a higher percentage. Um, Okay, coach, how? And that's where the enablement team really becomes critical. Once you have those two things in place, that's when you start hiring people into the system so that you can start executing and you can start really delivering on greater results and greater velocity. One of the metrics I know you really focused on is productive capacity. Can you define what that is and the the role that RevOps plays in determining what your productive capacity is? If you look at any sales organization, your productive capacity model is everything and anything to you. Because it tells you exactly what you can produce on a per sales head basis at the most simplistic level. Okay. Now, then the next question is fantastic. How do we impact that productive capacity per sales cohort? And that's where really revenue ops comes into play. Understanding where are we getting stuck? Is that a consistent thing across you know, the different teams? Okay. Clearly, Now you start analyzing with leaders, why are we getting stuck there? Great. We don't have a playbook that allows the reps to understand all the different strategies around pipeline generation, for example, just using using one element here, right? So now you start developing that playbook with the sales enablement engine, and now you start coaching and developing your team on how to execute against that playbook so that you took that productive capacity You knew what it was, you defined it, because that's pretty easy to do math on. The harder part is how do we now start impacting it? Because it impacts gross margins, it impacts operating profitability, it impacts everything in the end, because if your productive capacity isn't at its peak, the rest of the entire org starts getting taxed because everything is interconnected. So you obviously have a tremendous amount of rigor in terms of the frameworks, the processes, allowing for the unique capabilities that each of the reps bring to the table. My question though is what do you do about that rep that says, look, I'm closing business, I'm exceeding quota, I don't need to follow all this stuff, I got it taken care of. It's a great question and here's why. Many times you hire people who've been serially successful in the past. So clearly they know how to drive success. The question though becomes, and it's an easy one, again, it's, it's in how you coach and develop your people and how you hire. If you're hiring mercenaries or you know hiring people who are just in to make a quick buck, then you're going to get that attitude, which is, hey, I know how to close, I'm going to close, and then I'm out. 
The question though is, did you get maximum yield for your effort? Yes or no? Because while you can get to 120% of your number, wouldn't it be better to get to 200% of your number? So now let's sit down and have a conversation how with the same amount of effort, but with revised optimized activities, you can get to that higher payout. Help me understand why you don't think this is better for you and your family. So it goes back to the leadership enablement though that I referenced earlier. If you're not enabling your leaders in how to have these conversations, and how to then invest the time, because you can't just say it, you gotta prove how you're gonna up their yield for their activities and their efforts. But if you teach your leaders on how to do that, it becomes a really quick and easy conversation, right? Because what we do is not easy, it is hard, it is laborious, we're doing work for customers, we're programmatic, competitors are coming after us, legacy, new school, right? I, I like it because it keeps me, keeps me you know, going and keeps, keeps the mojo on because you got to be on at all times because everybody wants it. But you got to make sure that people who are coming into the system know what's coming. And then when they start feeling overwhelmed, because it's inevitable in any new job you start, you have the right leadership strategies in place to help them come out of that zone and to help them understand how to optimize everything they do on a daily basis for maximum yield. So again, easy answer to your question is 120% better or is 200% better with the exact same effort that you are putting forth today? You've talked a lot about the responsibility of the leader in sales. I like how you boil it down to the three R's. Tell us yep. what the three R's stand for. It's really, and uh, I learned this, I'm going to give uh, kudos to Mr. John McMahon here, um, learned this through something he implemented many, many decades ago, actually. And it's all, all revolving around three core concepts and principles that then have many subcategories below them. But it's all around recruit. It's all around retaining top talent. And then it's all about driving the revenue and the different strategies that come off of that. If you want to boil it down to what any sales go-to-market engine needs to address, it's those three elements. If you get the best people, if you train them and retain them, the revenue is going to come. And if you understand how to drive that revenue, you can maximize how fast it comes and how big it is. I'm just thinking back over the arc of your life. Clearly, you had the grit, you had the intelligence. But I also recognize that that couple that brought you into their home and in a, in a certain respect, created an environment where you could thrive, helped to teach you the ways of living in the desert in California that unlocked your potential. And in an interesting way, I see you creating organizations because in many respects, when, when you're a new hire and you come into a new company, that's like coming into a foreign country. You've created a similar environment where there's a fairly prescriptive set of, of playbooks and frameworks that people can use to quickly orient themselves and quickly have success. So I, I wonder if there's a, a connection there. I, you know, now that you put it in those terms, um, I had not connected the dots, but uh, perhaps, yes. Because um, if you think about what we've done is really <clears throat> build that platform for people to become the best version of themselves, as you know, you've heard me say. What that really means is anybody who comes to, to work with us, be part of this team, you have a responsibility for really helping them reach that potential. Most people don't even know what they're capable of because they've never been given that platform to, to ask those questions and reach that high. 
And this is what we provide here. I have so many stories of people who came in and have had three, four, five different promotions, have had tremendous success after having limited success in prior places, or people that had great success before having just extraordinary success in this system. And it, if you create a home like that, and I, you know, I'll reflect back on the last 12 months. I think in the last 12 months, a lot of people ask themselves, what do I really care about? What really matters to me? And what do I want out of my life going forward? Because we all had plenty of time to really rethink uh, everything about our lives. And I believe that an environment like this creates almost a home away from home because it rewards you will point out mistakes that you made. It will teach you. It will be patient with you. It will guide you along on the journey. It is a system that accepts the fact that you are not always going to do everything amazingly. And that's okay. As long as we keep progressing forward, as long as we keep learning and applying ourselves. And that's what we're trying to build here. It's it's not done, uh, but I think we've, we've done uh, a good job in progressing across our mission. Well, obviously, as a sales leader, your mission is to generate revenue and accelerate growth. I find it interesting, though, that the three R's, revenue is the third R. It's not the first or the second. And as you talk about what you're doing, clearly you want to deliver revenue, but you first and foremost talk about creating an environment where people can be the best versions of themselves. If you achieve that, the outcome is the revenue which you're ultimately responsible for. It really is. And um, I'm a firm believer in that if you're you're just chasing deals quarter in, quarter out, I think that comes to an end at some point, you're going to burn people out and it, it becomes really, it becomes an environment where you're living moment to moment. And that also isn't a fun journey. If you learn and if you get taught the principles around how to build something, how to create something, that has longevity, that has sustainability. That's going to guarantee you're going to aggregate all these marginal gains for a massive outcome or a series of massive outcomes. And I do believe in that. And you're correct. You know, two out of the three R's are people centric. And if you take care of that piece, the revenue always will be there. Yeah. Well, Dolly, it's been a fascinating conversation. Unfortunately, we're at the end of our time. I will end with one final question, though. As you look back over your life, if you had to boil it down to one thing, what is that one thing that's made the most difference for you? Uh, that's a hard one, but I'll, I'll give you the one that people can control. The one thing that's made a huge difference in my life has been the natural curiosity. Always wondering why, how, and always you know, exploring and not taking the status quo as an acceptable outcome. And that really has guided me well, not always, you know, made the right decisions because that's an impossibility for anybody, but it's, it's helped me move forward, not just with success, but also with really, um, I'm going to call it, you know, internal happiness and satisfaction. Cause you feel like you're constantly learning new things. You feel like you're evolving and you feel like you're always on an adventure. And uh, creates no dull moments. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of that. Well, Dolly, that's a great insight to end on. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Justin. Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. 
For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.